Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our next series, and the conversation today is sex, money, and power. The question for you to get started with is, where in your life do you have too much, and where in your life do you have too little? Enjoy. There's a word and a theme that we have for this year, and that word is next. Last year, our word and theme was the word reclaim, because we're a community of people who've been deconstructing some things, letting some things go, saying no to whatever, wondering what it is maybe that you believe in. Then there's reconstruction, which is picking things back up and saying, this is what I want to redefine, this is what I want to reclaim, this is what I want to be about. When people say God or Jesus or church or faith, we're not talking about what mom and dad gave me or APU or whatever you went to. Uh, what we're talking about is this new thing that I'm picking up, that we are telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles in 2019. The thing will get bigger. It will only get more interesting as we go to like Mars or whatever's next, right? So what we're doing today is we're gonna talk about everybody's favorite things. We're gonna talk about sex and we're gonna talk about money and we're gonna talk about power because it's Los Angeles in 2019, my friends. And what I'm gonna give you is the question that we're gonna end with. The question is very simple. How do my sexual choices, money, and power impact myself and others? Right? Yeah. This be fun. I heard Joel Osteen's preaching on the same thing this morning. Right? Who would've thought? Who would've thought? Guys, I just want to talk about sex and money and power. I just want each of you to have more houses and more sex. I don't know. Come on. In order to do this, we got to talk about some things. We're going to talk about sacred cows. We're going to talk about the internal and the external. We're going to talk about too little. And then if we're going to talk about too little, then we got to talk about too much. We're gonna talk about Cornelius Platinga, everybody's favorite theologian, come on. Then we're gonna talk about stories and concepts and then how do we reclaim, but more importantly, how do we eventually mature? So I wanna start by reading a passage from Luke <coughs> chapter 11. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Scandalous, right? Then the Lord said to him, yeah. I paid her for that. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, not inviting this guy back to your dinner party, are you? <laughs> Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. I don't even need to say anything else. 
I think there's an indictment, right, already going on. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you, evangelicals, Pharisees? <laughs> what did you hear? What did you hear? <laughs> For you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you? Few are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption that they are stepping in. <sighs> Teacher said an expert in religious law, you've insulted us too in what you just said. Yes, said Jesus. <laughs> I'm glad you're following along, he said. That's correct, right. You care more about taking the Bible literally than you do seriously, is what Jesus is saying. You care about more about your subjective moralities that you've made up than giving love and justice and kindness to all people, even gay people. Right? It's an indictment. It's been going on for 2,000 years, and Jesus is never afraid to call it out. Remember this. Jesus only challenges two people groups. He challenges the religious elite, and he challenges the rich. Because those are the only two people in the world who don't actually need God. Because they already have God all figured out, or they have all the money and power that they don't need God in any way. And Jesus is always challenging those people. There's never a story in the Gospels that you'll read about Jesus when confronted with following the law or the Bible that Jesus won't throw it out if instead he needs to follow compassion and kindness and mercy. Find a story. Find a story where Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus was the original hypocrite, uh, not hypocrite, heretic. <laughs> Dear Lord, baby Jesus, I apologize for calling you a hypocrite in church today. But you are the original heretic, the original one challenging the scriptures of his day, challenging the literal interpretations for the sake of human beings and human flourishing. That part is real. That part is subversive. That part is messy. Yes, what sorrow awaits you? Fear like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping in. Oh, I already did all that part, right? Yes, said Jesus. What sorrow also awaits you, experts in religious law? For you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you? For you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you join them in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his or her wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world. That's just so freaking intense. <laughs> from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees were pissed. <laughs> That's the Greek. And they wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Here's the deal. We all have sacred cows. We all have these sacred things that we were told when we were kids about this is the thing that you don't mess with, right? These, this is how you do communion. This is how worship is done. Always two hands, just one, on the side. You sit, whatever the thing was, right? 
This is how you understand the Bible. Whatever the thing is, the truth about those creeds and that denomination and that particular interpretation of scripture is those people are not evil or malicious. All that they're doing is what every human being has always done, is that somewhere, someone somewhere had a real experience and encounter with God at a Hillsong concert. I'm serious, right? And because they had that real experience, they want to tell everybody else about the Hillsong concert. There's nothing wrong with that. That's beautiful. Somebody went on a journey into the desert and there they found God and they want to tell everybody about going into the desert. You just pick the thing. That's how every tradition started. Where they become corrupt is when we believe that that tradition is somehow bigger than God. When we believe that the Bible is somehow bigger than God. When we believe that a creed can somehow contain God. Those things are just pointing to God. They are not God in and of themselves. And some of the greatest evils in the world have happened because people are busy protecting their sacred cows as if God is terrified, right? God's doing just fine, just so you know. Not stressed at all up there, right, about the heathens or whatever's going on. And so we all have sacred cows in our life, and we need to be able to name that. There's something incredibly important about that deconstruction process for every single person in this room. And part of that process is just to name, yes, there have been places in my life where people have named things, and those things have become oppressive or repressive to me. And you can just follow the words of Jesus and say, and it's okay to move away from those things. It's okay to create boundaries and to move away from those people. It's okay to begin to reconstruct and to pick up some new ways of interpreting and following and doing this Jesus life. And I hope that there's freedom for all of us in this room for it. Why? You just heard what Jesus did. It was intense. He's calling out the reality of his day. And I believe that if Jesus was here, Jesus would call out the reality of our cultures as well where we have allowed what church is or what happens on a Sundays or we've confused politics and Jesus in such ways that we have oppressed and repressed people. But Jesus would always encourage us to move towards mercy and love and justice. And one of the reasons that Jesus does that is that Jesus is always focused on the internal before Jesus is focused on the external. We start with the external in a lot of ways. When we're kids, we need parents to give us healthy boundaries and healthy guardrails, and they need to tell us things like, if you go in the street, you're going to die, right? <laughs> Cars kill you. If you touch that stove, you will get burned, die. Okay, like someone said, die, yeah. <laughs> you see what I'm teaching here, kids, right? If you have sex, you will get gonorrhea and die. <laughs> Come on, you were there. I'm so relevant, it's unbelievable. And so we start with those external, re oh, come on, right? Did I really get that in there? That was good, sorry. So we all start with those external realities because they're okay, those traditions are okay. They're not evil and malicious within themselves. And this is where evolution and maturity and transformation are necessary is that we should always grow in our understanding of who God is and what kingdom is. And this is why Jesus is so interested about what's happening internally with people. Because externally, there's always going to be things going on. And it's about internally, how do we gain different perspectives and different healing and different 
um, ver- like views of what God is doing and of our own lives. That's why Jesus is never interested in getting into the subjective and arbitrary lists that his culture makes. And every culture makes them, by the way. I grew up as a good evangelical boy in Colorado. I signed at least 18 purity cards. Anybody else? Yeah. And that wasn't evil in and of itself. People were trying to protect me. People were trying to say there's actual wisdom out there and that your sexual habits and choices actually matter. They weren't prepared for the nuances and the reality of what it would mean to grow up in the late 20th century and 21st century. And that's the challenge all the time is about how we need to come back to the scriptures, is that we need to open these things up. We make these external sacred cows and we believe that they need to be true for all people all the time. And we don't consider the context of what's going on in that day. We don't consider the context that most of the Bible was written in an agrarian culture when people got married at 15, right? So when you were horny at 15, you just had sex with your spouse on your farm, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's real. Preaching truth here but that we live in Los Angeles in 2019. And that maybe how we understand what sexuality is, maybe how we understand our own sexual habits and choices needs to evolve. And that we don't need to create new arbitrary lists, but what we need to do is do what Jesus is asking us to do, which is to take a deep look at our internal realities, perspectives, where the kingdom actually lives, and out of the overflow of health and maturity and healing and transformation that is taking place within us, then we'll be able to ask better questions about the truly sacred things in our life, things like sex, things like money, and things like power. And I believe that's what Jesus is always advocating for. It's always easier just to create an arbitrary list and to believe somehow that that's the thing that God actually cares about. God is not interested in making lists for the sake of making lists. If there is a God out there who's just interested in doing that, that God is a sociopath. Seriously. So you're telling me that this God breathed into existence 13.8 billion years of evolution, creation, and consciousness, and at the end of it all, he just wanted to know if a 14-year-old boy wasn't going to touch a boob or not? (laughs) Wow. Right? No. That's not the point. The point is that this God believes in life and goodness and human flourishing and that human beings would ask bigger questions so that we would make healthy choices with one another and with our own lives. And so Jesus is always challenging the internal and saying, be aware of all the people who make up arbitrary lists about the external because most likely those arbitrary lists that they're making up are benefiting someone and it's them because they're the people in power. They're the people who have things. It's very easy for someone to stand on a platform and tell you to live a life exactly like they are when they're receiving all of the benefits. And Jesus was the first to always say, that's not what it's about. Jesus was never asking people to come to his church. Jesus was always going to where people were at, crossing boundaries to understand their context and their food and their lives and how they did things and what they had going on and their brokenness and their sin and their pain. That's where Jesus was always going. So not that you come and exactly copy the thing that was before you so that you would go and that you would be a transformed version of you. And that's where Christ is most interesting. When we're all the healthiest versions of us and that might be different than the person next to you and that's terrifying for a lot of people. 
It's terrifying because what we're teaching people to do is to trust your experience first and foremost. That doesn't mean that scripture and tradition can't be a guide, but your experience is where God is dwelling at. You, my friends, are the temple of God. That's why internally Jesus cares about you because you are where God dwells. But we spend so much time trying to protect all of the external temples that are going on. So we have that context and setup, and then that prepares us for a passage that I've loved for three years. And there's a word in here that changed and revolutionized the way that I see God and the scriptures and the empathy and compassion that I have in the world. Follow along with me in Luke chapter 12. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops, and he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. He was an American, this is unbelievable. (laughs) Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods, and I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night, then who will get everything that you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. There's a word that is in this passage, and it's a word for greed. It is a Greek word called pleonexia, which, yeah, you all read Greek. You know exactly what that is. Perfect. This word pleonexia is a word that I came across a a few years ago and I was so fascinated by it because I'm a Bible nerd and so I get excited about like reading Greek words in the Bible. And as I start looking up where these other Greek words find themselves, it began to paint this much bigger narrative about what I think that God is actually interested, how we understand God, how we understand humanity, how we understand things like sin. Because what I'm never interested in is throwing out words like sin or throwing out words like hell. I think they're very powerful words that have powerful meanings. I just think that we've abused what they actually are. And they're not helpful for us anymore because they're all external sacred cows and they're not about internal transformation and healing and maturity. And so when I came across this word pleonexia, it's simply the word for greed, but it's also a word for coveting. And the rabbis will talk about the Ten Commandments in this way. They'll say, if you can keep the Tenth Commandment, you'll be able to keep all of the other commandments as well. Because the Tenth Commandment is don't covet. All of the other nine commandments before that are kind of don't do these external things. But the Tenth Commandment is nobody knows but you in your heart if you're coveting your neighbor's wife or husband. No one knows if you're coveting your neighbor's Mercedes or donkey except you. And so what the scriptures are trying to teach us this is that all begins inside. And that's where the magic is actually at. The word pleonexia is just this idea of something that is too much. And we've all experienced too much in our lives. Instead of it being that there's an arbitrary list that God is making up just to see if you can do it or not, what I begin to see throughout the scriptures is that God is very interested in this idea of if we have too much or too little, And that throughout the evolution of scriptures, that that even fluctuates depending on where like culture and context is at. I know it's just like wild things to say. And so this idea of greed is asking this bigger question of, are you consuming too much of something in such a way that it will devastate you or that it will hurt you? 
And is that thing so painful to you, as we say all the time here at New Abbey, that hurt people hurt people, that because you're consuming that thing, that you'll also hurt other people because that would just leak out of you? Let me make that a little bit more practical. That the word for pleonexia, what's interesting within the scriptures, is that when you look throughout the New Testament, is that this word for greed almost exclusively comes up in the same passages about sexual immorality. Here's a few of them. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people, right? So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. All these passages keep lining up next to each other, where we see this word for greed, pleonexia, and we see things like sexual immorality. But here's what I find so fascinating about an evangelical, Protestant, or Catholic culture in the United States, where we are the most powerful people on planet Earth. We love creating sacred cows around sexual immorality. When do you hear sermons about greed? We're the greediest mother there ever been. (laughs) Right? And isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating that when we're powerful and rich and whatever, and you happen to be straight, and you happen to be white, and you happen to be a male, and you're reaping all the benefits of the church, it's so easy to marginalize another group. Even though the thing that you are most, right, indicted for is always in the same passages as the very things that you're talking about. How do we miss that? We miss that because we're powerful. No one ever says, if you have $687,000, 300, whatever, you get a number. I'm a pastor, not an accountant. <laughs> whatever that mythological number is, if you have that, you're greedy. Do people ever talk that way? No. Why? Because you could have $10 billion or $10 and you could be greedy. But we don't do that when it comes to sexual immorality. We say, if this skin touches this skin, God is rejoicing, my friends right? But if this skin touches this skin, God is closing God's eyes and sad and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? But here's the interesting thing is those things are not names like that in the scriptures. We put identification, interpretation, and definitions to what those things are. What I'm saying is that there's a power trip going on here. There's always been a power trip going on among the religious elite. Jesus knew that in Jesus's day. Jesus knows that about our day. It's not about what skin touches what skin. It's not about the exact number that you have in your checking account or don't have in your checking account. It's all about measuring, being aware, having self-awareness and ownership of what's taking place within your heart. And is that thing too much for you? Because if that thing is too much for you and you are greedy at any level, with your money, with your sex, with your emotions, with your name it, that thing is gonna be destructive for you and destructive for other people. But what Jesus is trying to teach you is it's about you figuring out your maturity in these things, right? It's about you understanding that for you, maybe pornography is destructive for your life, right? For somebody else, maybe it's not. A pastor just said that in church, I know that's wild. But I think that we need to be honest about our money. And we need to be honest about sexual choices. We need to be honest that we're living in 2019 and we don't live in an agrarian culture where people get married at 15. We need to be honest about the fact that Paul in Romans 1 had no idea of what a committed homosexual relationship would look like in 2019. He didn't know or understand that, right? Everything that Paul was talking about in his world in Romans 1 was temple worship with little kids and we would all say, that's too much, 
That thing is destructive. That thing is never healthy for humanity. You see how this thing opens up in a whole nother way. And that's terrifying for most people who are supposed to have all of the religious answers. Because what it's saying is, you got to keep working this thing out with God so that you can find health in your life. In English, we have another word. It's called anorexia. Too little. And the Bible's very aware of this as well. Too little is also destructive to you. How many people do I know that went to colleges like mine, Azusa Pacific University, got married incredibly young because they just wanted to have moral sex? How many people do I know who went through that process, right, to get divorced later, to have pain later, or to find out, everyone told me not to have sex, and now I don't even know how to enjoy it? Why? Because we weren't actually walking with people through real processes of internal transformation. We were just giving them arbitrary lists. We can still give them wisdom. If you're just living a life where we're only swiping right on Tinder every time, we can still have a little wisdom, right? And that's what's beautiful about this. We're still saying sin's a real thing. Pleonexia is a real thing. Greed is incredibly real in our culture. The greed of power is incredibly real within our culture. Isn't it fascinating that we are a culture that is obsessed with sexual purity, and yet we approve greed like a $750 billion defense budget, right? That we're all about power. Isn't it interesting that we will comment on people's sexuality, but then we are okay with our own greed in our pocketbooks? Those can be destructive things. That's the point of the passages. If you are consuming in such a way that you keep needing to continue to build bigger barns, that thing might be destructive for you. If you are consuming your own sexual habits and sexuality in such a way that you need to keep building bigger barns, there might be something off. You might not be content. You might not be satisfied. We would call that thing sin. Cornelius Platinga, my friends, provides for us one of my favorite definitions of sin of all time, which is the palpable disruption of shalom. If you put that with Pleo next to you, you get it, right? There's a famous Supreme Court justice who in the 1970s, they were doing a case about pornography, and he says, I can't define pornography, but we all know it when we see it. I think that's what it is when it comes to the palpable disruption of shalom. It's you getting to look into your life and saying, whatever that greed, whatever that amassing of barns is, right, in my life, I know it when I see it. And I'm trying to teach myself to have some internal wisdom to say, that thing is unhealthy for my life. Just like you need to look at the anorexia that might be going in in your life, right, and say, I know it when I see it, and I need healing and health here. I grew up as a young man who, what I was told is that it was cool to be a player. It was cool to use and take from young women whatever it is that you wanted. That's what made you popular or whatever the thing may be. What I didn't know that that would teach me later on in life is that what, how I dealt with my emotions is I sexualized everything. Because I grew up in a broken home and I got deep $10,000 worth of therapy mommy issues. Seriously. And I don't know how to cope with particularly people, women, when they're emotional. I don't know how to handle that, right? And what I learned later on in life is I had an anorexia and a pleonexia going on in my life. The anorexia was I craved intimacy but had no idea how to have intimacy with women. 
So I overcompensated it by building bigger barns and using and abusing every woman that I could. The guilt that I have today is not that I broke the arbitrary lists. The guilt that I have today, or that I had premarital sex, or that, because I think that, that that's what God was magically afraid of. The guilt that I have today is that I treated another human being with less dignity than they were worth. Because I didn't know myself. I didn't know my own internal kingdom that God was working on here. And I took advantage of people. And I'm, allowed, and I'm willing to call that thing out as the palpable disruption of shalom. Not because a certain piece of skin touched a certain piece of skin before I said wedding vows. That's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because I participated in building bigger barns and I was compulsive and obsessive and destructive to other human beings and to myself and it bruised my soul for years to come. And for some of you out there emotionally, you know what that bruising of the soul looks like. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your inability to have intimacy as well. Maybe for some of you out there, you understand how money is a burden for you, right? Money is maybe something that you obsess over or money is something that you obsess over because you don't have enough of. There's an anorexia there and it's destructive to your life. Some of you out there, you just understand power dynamics. We all have power dynamics in every relationship that we have in life. There are some people in your families who have all of the relational power and they don't like when anyone else gets relational power for themselves and they keep building bigger barns, right? And there are some of you who've been so shut up in your families for years that you're anorexic in the power in your family and you feel like you're gonna fall apart at another Thanksgiving dinner. The point of Jesus is stop talking about the sacred cows. Stop trying to have to prove to people that you have to convince them of the Greek of the Bible and is this going to work out? That's not the point. Jesus is saying, I want love and mercy and justice for your life. I want you to experience grace and healing and wholeness. And if there's areas of your life that you have too little, would you trust that the God of the universe wants to bring grace and healing and love there? If there's places of your life that you are consuming too much, would you trust that the God of the universe wants to make you content and satisfied and whole? These are the things that we trust about God. These are the things that Jesus is saying in these stories. And here's what I believe about it to move us towards some practicality of maturity. Is that there is a reason that when Jesus answers questions, Jesus primarily only tells people responses in stories. Jesus doesn't give arbitrary lists back to people. Jesus was asked 307 questions. He asked himself 182 questions and he only responded with three answers. The rest of the time, parables, narratives, and stories. Why? Because a story is gray. And in a story, you have to find yourself in it. It's not somebody else using their experience so that you have to find yourself within their experience and their sacred cow. It's Jesus saying, I want you to find your maturity. I want you to find your health. Because what we've done, particularly in the progressive or inclusive and affirming world, is because we haven't done a good job of looking internally. Sometimes we want to throw out the wisdom that's been out there of, there are times we will build too big of barns. There are times that we do things that are destructive to our lives. Let's just not pretend that this is a free-for-all, that we can do whatever the hell we want. Because I promise you, that's not going to work well for you either. And most of the time, we need the free-for-all to do whatever the hell we want, because it's been so repressive and oppressive and anorexic on the other side of things and you're just craving, looking, longing for something to fulfill you. All of that is in the words of Jesus as he challenges our very notions of what sex is, challenges our very notions of what power is, 
challenging our notions of what money is. It's not about lists that a God makes up. It's about a God who believes that kingdom begins first and foremost within your heart. And there is where God's spirit will bring healing for you and transformation into your lives. And then God asks us to participate in maturity. And sometimes in maturity, we gotta say no to some things. And sometimes in maturity, we need to say yes to some things. And here's the wild thing about it. You got to decide that for your own life. Do that in unison with God's spirit. Do that in unison with scriptures. Do that in unison with a deep, wide tradition. Do that in unison with a community of people who can help ask nuanced and savvy questions around you. Do that in unison with a therapist, right? Do that in unison with a spiritual director. Don't do it alone. But no matter what we do, let's move towards maturity and let's ask these bigger questions of God. You're gonna get back in those same groups and you're gonna answer this question. How do my sexual choices, money, and power impact myself and others? Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.